Our scripture today comes from Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. It's on page 974 in your pew Bible. Let us stand. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God, the word of God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit, the very Spirit that has been sent to us the spirit of your Son who enables us, who himself cries out and makes us cry out, Abba, Father. O Lord, may that spirit now teach us this word, for we are your children by your grace. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do. Enable us to understand what we are, who we are as your children For Jesus' sake, amen. I know some of you have heard a few of our stories about our own adoption. All three of our children have been adopted. And naturally, you have a few uh, touching things that happen along the way. I thought that might get us into this subject a little bit since we're going to talk about adoption and God being our Father One of the things that we were taught early on by the agency is that if and when your children ask about their birth, about their birth mom, about all of that, that you not act scared or threatened or let's don't talk about it, but you just be wide open, up front, relaxed, talk to them. Uh, They need information and and the clearer you are and the more relaxed and at peace you are, the better it is for them to understand. And and that goes to later if they want to meet their parents, uh, their birth mom and dad, etc. So uh, it happened a little earlier because Chase had seen this lady who was with child, as Kay's dad likes to say. And uh, he, uh, he wondered what was wrong with her, of course, that she had this... protrusion in her stomach and so she asked Kay about it he asked Kay about it right before bed one night she said well there's a baby in her tummy and then he said oh so was I in your tummy she knew right there it was and I have to be honest I have to tell him right now well no you weren't in my tummy and you were in somebody else's tummy and talked about it and he got this look on his face and he said boy I wish I could have been in your tummy (laughs) And uh, she said, I wish you could have been too. But at the same time, we wanted them to have a deep appreciation and love for their birth mom, for the sacrifice that they made, for the decision that they made, 
Uh, we were setting up a Right to Life booth one time, and there were some pictures. This was at a county, uh, the Arklamis Fair in Monroe, Louisiana, and we were going to show some pictures and show people with the nature of the children. And one little boy who was uh, several years older than Chase, Chase was maybe four at the time, he was looking at all these pictures and thinking through the abortion, and he knew that Chase was adopted, and he actually came up to Chase and said, Chase, you could have been an abortion. I mean, it just struck him that this child was there, his friend was there because a mom had made a decision to uh, have him. So the term birth mom became a household word in our house. So we got this cat that was a kitten, okay? It was just a little kitten, and we were, it, it inherited us, you know, found us and wanted to be a part of our family, so we had it for several weeks, and then suddenly the kitten has babies. Surprised us all. So Anna Kate is talking to her grandmother, Mama Jean, and she says, yeah, and she had this little duck voice, sounded just like a duck quacking when she talked. <clears throat> and she said, yeah, Mama Jean, uh, you know that kitten that we've had? Well, she had babies. We think she's a birth mom. Because <laughs> <laughs> they had, we had introduced them. One of the things we had told them to ex- explain it was to see uh, a girl that was maybe 15, 16 years old and say, this was how old your mom was. And that helped them understand why she couldn't keep me because she was so young. So they got to thinking and she thought this kitten must be a birth mom, a little 16-year-old. <clears throat> well, this adoption is such a tender thing, isn't it? It's such a, it gets so close to who we are as human beings that a child is taking into another family and uh, the love that's there and the commitment and the commitment all around, the support of other people. Uh, it's an awesome thing. And isn't it amazing that this is one of the essential things God wants us to understand about ourselves? Essential things that, to understand. In fact, as this passage unfolds, we find that He redeemed us ultimately for the purpose that the Holy Spirit would be sent to put into our hearts and our lips this cry, Abba, Father. That's the point of this passage as we're going to unfold it. The point of sending His Son is so that you and I, from the heart, with passion, could say, Abba, one day. That's the whole gospel. That's the whole Bible, in a sense. Right in a nutshell here. That's how critical uh, adoption is and this sense of knowing that we are His children. So we'll look at it in two parts. First, the bondage of the law and then the liberty of sonship. The bondage of the law and then the liberty of sonship. And... In our final application, we want to especially ask the title of the sermon, Live. How do we live as children of God or as a child of God? You'll notice that he says in verse 3 that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And this is later defined somewhat in verse 5 
that we were redeemed, we who were under the law. So there's some association with these elementary principles. Elementary principles, just what it sounds like. It was used many times to describe the ABCs or the fundamental parts of the universe or the the little dots on a dial. You see, the, the basic elements. And when he says the elements of the world, he's talking about the world as opposed to God or separate from God, the world in its seeking redemption. So there was an enslavement to these principles. Particularly, he's underscoring the enslavement or the bondage of the law because he talks about that in verse 4. Also, you have the background of all of chapter 3, which talks about how the law uh, guarded us and the law held us, verse 23 of chapter 3, captive, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So this is the background. This is the context here. Some sense in which the law held us in bondage. Now, when he talks about the law in this way, we've got to understand He's taking law wearing its command face, okay? Its command face. Its its pure law requirement face. This part of the law that in and of itself as it's merely demand and then punishment for that demand brings with it no forgiveness, no capability to change our lives. Now, we have to say that because if you take the whole of the Old Testament in its proper context, the law is built upon the promises to Abraham and the wonderful sacrificial system which pointed to Christ. It also speaks of the redemption from Egypt, which has overtones of redemption and points to Jesus Christ. And then the act of circumcision itself is held up to be a symbol of how our hearts are renewed to love God. So I'm pointing out just a few of the things that point to redemption and salvation. Circumcise your, I will circumcise your heart so that you will love me with all of your heart. Very spiritual, very New Testament sounding, new heart. Or you've been redeemed out of Egypt, now you are my people. That's a picture of the redemption of Christ. All of the sacrifices are a picture of Christ. And the very all the promises to Abraham are not negated. They were received by faith and faith alone, as Paul points out. And the law, 430 years later, doesn't take away all of that promise. But at this point, Paul is looking at law in a narrow sense. Law as it's just command, demand, and punishment. And especially it's against the background of Jewish misunderstanding of the Old Testament and in many ways thwarting the overall meaning of the Old Testament and boiling it down to law. But so as he looks at law in this sense, law then as a demand holds us captive and imprisons us to deliver us and point us to Jesus Christ. Why is this so? Well, first of all, the law exposes our sin. You've just bought a house, and for some reason you fail to get it inspected. Of course, I know that's not possible in the law, but you fail to get it inspected, and 
you start feeling a few things and smelling a few things and wondering what's going on. And then you have this grand inspection of your house and you find out that is eaten up with termites. Roaches are taken over. Rats are everywhere. There's rot throughout. The foundation is failing. There's mold. There's asbestos. And you're on a sinkhole. And you've already paid for it. <laughs> this isn't the inspection that you wish you had before you bought it. It's the inspection you dread after you own it. That's what the law does. Exposing everything that is inside of us. And that's why then we're suddenly held captive. Because there is no hope in the burning light of the law's holiness and examination. There's no hope that we can get forgiveness from that law. Because the law simply over and over and the more we take a movement, the more is exposed and we move again and more is exposed. It just keeps exposing how sinful we are. And it's relentless, relentless, constant. And every day brings more exposure. Every day shows more how much I'm disobedient to this law. But as Paul in other places points out, the law not only exposes, but it causes us to manifest even more sin. He talks about this in Romans 7. And that's why it exposes how sinful we are, because the law, as Paul says, is holy and righteous and good. And yet when it is brought to bear in our lives, we don't get holy and righteous and good. We get more sinful. Our pride reacts poorly before the law. Our rebellion manifests it all the more. Our self-will, our self-righteousness. And then despair can set in. Despair causes us even more to disobey because we see our sin. I talked about this in Sunday school class, but if you've uh, been trying to lose weight over a two-week period and you get on the scales and you're thinking, I hope I lost four pounds, and you gain six. If you're like me, it's like, where's the chocolate? You know? <laughs> Despair. So let's give up. Let's, let's eat. You know, forget it. <clears throat> and so that's what happens to us. We get, and, and Paul calls it in Romans 8, he says, it, he doesn't actually call it a treadmill, but he says that, that pattern of the law and sin and death. The law, sin, death. Law, sin, death. And it's just like a treadmill and we're just going deeper and deeper. It's a magnet that should draw us like metal filaments to it. But we find that in us there is a sinful polarity to the law's goodness and we are repulsed by it. And we turn away from it. Even if on the outside we're trying to play like we obey it, on the inside we're not. We can bring nothing to this law. And the thing that the, the law doesn't, it, it, it exposes, but it brings no forgiveness in and of itself. It manifests our sin, but it brings no power to change us. And so we are held captive and condemned. And it closes us up and urges us that there is only one pathway out. And that is Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul can say, 
in verse 22 of chapter 3. The scripture, and in here he's talking about the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So it brings no power to change us. A train pulls up of a starving uh, city and you throw back all the doors of the cars and they're all empty. That's what the law has to supply you with obedience, to enable you to keep it. It brings nothing to the table but just showing up and exposing more of your sin and causing you to fall even further away. Again, the law in and of itself. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, what the law could not do, God has done in Christ Jesus. You see, What the law could not do, God has done in Christ. And he speaks of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit renews us. The grace of Christ and the cross of Christ alone is what changes us. And so the law leaves us condemned, it sets the verdict, it calls for the death penalty, the wages of sin is death. And again, though there are these rich, redemptive aspects of the law, they too serve the same purpose, pointing away from law itself, saying there must be a sacrifice, there must be a renewal of the heart. There must be promise that you can rest in by faith. There must be a release and redemption from enslavement like you saw pictured in Egypt. See, all of those things serve to point to the fact that the law narrowly considered is no hope whatsoever. There must be redemption and change. There must be a Holy Spirit. There must be liberation. There must be a death on our Behalf, But you see, added into this mix into which Paul is speaking is the fact that the Jews had basically denuded the Old Testament forest so that the fruit, the rich fruit of redemption was hardly to be seen in, their, in much of their teaching. So, he says, given this background that... We were children enslaved to the elementary principles. Or from chapter 3, we were held captive under the law, prisoned until the coming of faith. Or in verse 22, everything was prisoned under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given. Into that context, when the fullness of time had come, the time of God's choosing the perfect time in his own estimation, in his own plans had come. God sent forth his son. Now, first of all, this speaks of the majesty and glory of his coming. God sent forth his son. And this, of course, we're moving from the bondage of the law now to the liberty of the children of God or the liberty of sonship. And this speaks of his divinity. He sent forth his son. His son already was. His son was with him. His son was at his side. And God sent forth his son with divine authority. 
It speaks of the glory of His coming. And then right in the same breath, this glorious one sent with divine authority was born of woman. And it's not the woman. It's not really pointing to Mary so much, although it was Mary. But it's speaking of the fact that he was born of woman. Like in Matthew eleven eleven, one born of a woman. And this speaks of his weakness, his true humanity, of his condescension on our level. That he took from her all that belongs to human beings. In the full sense, she was his mother. We have to say because he is one person. He is God and man, but one person. She was the mother of the one who was himself the Son of God. Born of woman. So, he's fully God and he's fully man. This speaks of his divinity and his his humanity. Only as God's son could he bring us to God, could he make us sons of God, but only as he is man could he substitute for us, live righteously in our behalf, die, suffer punishment on our behalf, and redeem us. He was the God-man. God sent forth his son born of woman. And he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. If you go back to chapter 3, it speaks in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that Christ's hanging on the cross represented the fact that one is cursed of God. He was judged to be a criminal by the court. He was publicly exposed as one who had disobeyed God. And he was publicly exposed as one rejected and cursed by God. That was on purpose. He was not just waylaid by bandits on a road somewhere wasn't just that he died. It was how he died as one obviously considered a sinner and criminal of the worst kind, given the worst judgment of the day for public exposure to fully make the point he is dying in our place for he is the righteous one dying for the unrighteous and bearing up, bearing their very sin. Only a righteous man could have substituted for the unrighteous people that we are. So he was the righteous one who was born under the law. This indicates, too, that from his birth he was under the law. From his birth he kept the law as a 5-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, all the way through adulthood, keeping it in every circumstance, in every way, thought, word, and deed, perfectly obeying the law, and then perfectly obeying and showing forth his Father's love by dying on the cross. Then notice that the reason he he sent him to redeem in order to redeem them so that 
we might receive adoption as sons. The sending forth of His Son, being born of a woman, being under the law, being exposed to punishment, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then notice, because you are sons, it is not that you come to some second blessing in your life, no extra qualification to get the Spirit. There's no preparation work to get the Spirit. There's no earning it or having a good record. There's no condition you have to meet. There's no experience you have to have. It's simply as you trust Christ, you have the Spirit because you're sons. Just because you're sons. And he's just spoken of that faith in chapter 3, that we might be justified by faith, verse 24. And that's why we belong to Christ. And the only reason we belong to Christ, we helplessly depend upon Him. And because of that faith, we are made His children. And because you're His child, He will send His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Now, it's interesting, the same word for sent, and in fact, the same exact word, same tense and everything that... Uh, in verse 4, God sent His Son, is in verse 5. Uh, he, I'm sorry, verse 6, He sent the Spirit of His Son. So there's a double sending. There's the sending of the Son to accomplish salvation. The sending of the Spirit to apply that salvation. There's the sending of the Son to secure sonship for you, but then the sending of the Spirit to assure you of that sonship. He doesn't just want you to have sonship. He wants you to enjoy sonship. He doesn't just want you to own it, but to know you own it. (laughs) To experience it and taste it and know the comfort of it and the joy of it. To be strengthened by it. That's the ultimate purpose of His sending, that you will have the most profound, intimate, passionate experiences of being a child of God. So He's not just in some general way wanting to save you, but that salvation is very specific so that you no longer would see yourself as a slave, verse 7. You are not a slave any longer. You must not have a slavish mentality. In fact, when Paul speaks of it in Romans 8, he says, you haven't received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So that's one aspect of it. There is be no fear. And that's why John labors this point in 1 John 4, that we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And he says when we completely understand that love, he says it casts out fear. We have no fear of punishment in Judgment Day because we taste His love. We know I'm His child. Yes, bring on Judgment Day. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be terrible in in its majesty and everything. But I'm His child. He's my daddy. He's my daddy. He's put in my heart, Abba, Father. And I want to encourage you, if this experience is distant from you, it's a work of grace. You can cry out to Him for this part of salvation because here it is. 
He sends His Spirit specifically for anyone who trusts in Christ so that your experience will be like a child saying, Daddy, knowing His love and His acceptance, His embrace of you. So your salvation, ongoing acceptance, and ongoing experience of Him does not depend so much on all your meticulous obedience and getting it right all the time. It's founded upon this finished accomplishment. And you and I must not crawl back in the cage with the curse, crawl back into the bondage of a life of fear, a life of slavery. So that the way we live the Christian life, as John Stott says, is to remember who and what we are in Him. And He takes such pains to do this. As I've said before in Romans 5, 5, He's poured out the Spirit in our hearts so that we would... He actually says through the Spirit, He's poured the love of God in our hearts so that we would know that love. That's why when he speaks of being empowered by the Spirit in the inner man in Ephesians 3, it's to the final end that we would know the depth of the love of Christ. It takes divine power. It takes the Spirit working in His unlimited capacity to bring about continually our understanding of the love of God. And Luther said, There is no slavery in Christ Only sonship. Only sonship. So, He makes us His children, but He wants you to know that you're His child. And so, resist slave thinking. Resist unbelief. Resist any rejection of this gospel of grace. The sense that I'm all alone and God doesn't, think about me or care about me. That's slave mentality. It's not the gospel. It's not the real God. There isn't a God like that. He is the God who has infinite concern for you. That He doesn't notice me. He's neglected me. He's disregarded me. I can't get His attention. He won't focus on me. That's a slave mentality. Now, even then, it's okay to cry out and say, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Lord, you feel distant from me. Lord, I'm not tasting your goodness. I'm not tasting your love. But not to wallow in it, not to make it your daily food, so to speak, and to live in slavery. He says you are no longer a slave. And the Spirit, by His grace, really enables you to say, Abba, Father. When we protect ourselves from caring for one another, protect ourselves from ministering to people or meeting somebody on Sunday even, or showing hospitality, taking initiative in relationships, then we're living like slaves instead of children who are tasting the love of God. And that love is enabling us to push out and to give ourselves away to other people. When we say, I can never change... I will never grow. That's a slave talking. If we say, the church will always be the same, that's a slave talking. That's not children. 
who know that God is at work and God cares for His people. And we see Him as our Daddy who has an unlimited concern for us and will accomplish great things for those who believe. That's the way the Israelites were in the desert. You see, they had been trained in slavery, and so they carried it right into the desert, and they rejected the love of God, and they continued to think like slaves, and they would not embrace Him as their father at all. All forms of self-pity, all forms of blaming other people and making excuses for our sin, that's a slave talking, not a child, who can come into the presence of God and admit, this is what I am. Lord, I trust in you to forgive me. When you hear little phrases even like this, wouldn't you know it would rain today? Ever say that one? That's not only slave, that's total pagan talk right there. Total pagan talk like the Baal worshipers who thought they had to bleed themselves in order maybe to get God's attention and let Him be good to them. And wouldn't you know, we'd plan a picnic and it would rain. So as to say, that's how mean God is. That's a slave mentality. And of course, little things like I hope nothing will happen this day. Knock on wood. That's slave slash pagan, okay? Slave slash pagan talk. That we can somehow appease the gods or appease this God by some little thing that we might do or say rather than, he's my daddy. He'll take care of me today. Yeah, things are not looking good, but he's my daddy. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that burned in your heart all through the day with every prayer and all of your worship and all of your interactions with other people? You were being sustained and enlivened by this happy, restful, joyous sense. He is my daddy. And several have pointed out when he says we cry out, it shows the intensity of our love it shows the intensity of our need and our helplessness and the intensity of our boldness and confidence. Isn't that wonderful? The intense love we have, the absolute dependence we have, and the absolute confidence we have that He will do us good. He doesn't just put in our lips, Abba, Father, we cry out with intensity. Daddy! <laughs> I remember one time when I was at a RUF retreat <clears throat> speaking. It was up in Tennessee, and it was uh, in the winter. And uh, Anna Kate got chased by some geese that were there. You know, it's, it's like one of those kind of horror movies. Oh, look, geese. Yeah! You know, whole flock of geese are after her. And, of course, what, what did you hear? Mama, Daddy! You know. And there's something of that here. That, that wonderful confidence, Daddy's here, he'll save me from the geese, you know. She didn't think Daddy would say, no, get him, you know, I'll go after her too, you know. No. But many times, you see, that's where we end up. Almost that God is part of the enemy. Part, God is part of the problem. He's against me. And that's why over and over and over in Scripture, He's for you. He's for you. He's for you. Christ died. If He did not spare His Son, how will He not freely give you 
all things. If God is for us, what could be against us? Why? He's our daddy. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't know God as your father, I tell you, that is of all things. There's no tragedy on earth except this, that you would go through this life and not know God as your father and your daddy. It doesn't matter if you get cancer at 17 or die at 5 or 25. That's not the ultimate tragedy. If if you live to be 90 and never knew God as your daddy through Jesus Christ, won't you believe in him now? Won't you trust Christ now? to save you from your sin and to bring you and make you a son of God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that the Holy Spirit, in the wonderful way Paul puts it, he actually cries out. How graphic, Lord. He cries out and he makes it our cry. That involved to form not only on our lips, but to form our hearts so that this is who we are. It is what we believe. It is what we taste and experience by your grace. How much change would come if we knew this? How freely would we give ourselves to you? If we understood more of your love, for you say we love because you first loved us. If we know your love as our father and daddy, oh Lord, how will we give ourselves away freely to others? Bless us, Lord. Bless us with true worship. The worship of God, not as slaves that dishonor you, but as sons and daughters of the King future heirs of your kingdom. Oh, Lord, may we lift our heads high. And even as the man said in Pakistan, he says, we do not bow the head. We lift the head up, for we have no shame. He is our daddy. Oh, Lord, we exalt you as our father. Amen.